few verses from Psalm 110. If you care to turn there, I would remind you that our meeting from the 1901 American Standard Version, a Psalm of David, Jehovah saith unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jehovah will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power, in holy array. Out of the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Jehovah hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand will strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill the places with dead bodies. He will strike through the head in many countries. He will drink of the brook in the way. Therefore will he lift up the head. Well, many of you, most of you know that we have been preaching through for some time, the life of David in 2 Samuel. And I do need to bring us up to speed, as it were, by reading the portion that we're looking at this morning in 2 Samuel 19. I'm going to read just a few verses from verse 11 of that 19th chapter through 14. And King David sent to Zadok and to Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah, saying, Why are ye the last to bring the king back to his house? Seeing the speech of all Israel has come to the king to bring him back to his house. Ye are my brethren, ye are my bone and my flesh. Wherefore then are ye the last to bring back the king? And say ye to Amasa, Art thou not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also. If thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab. And he, David, bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man. So that they sent unto the king, saying, Return thou and all thy servants. Here we have this 14th verse telling us that David bowed the heart of all the men of Judah. He bowed the heart of those that were of his tribe, Judah. He complained because Israel was calling him back, but Judah hadn't said a word yet. Judah hadn't made a, a motion to call him back, to invite him back, to welcome him after Absalom had been defeated. And so he patiently waited in Mahanium until he heard word of what they would do. But the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit himself, we're told he bowed the heart of those of his tribe, his own tribesmen, his peculiar people, we could say, those who were his own. He said, you're my brethren, you're my bone and my flesh. 
my tribesmen, my people, my bone and my flesh. How is it, we ask, that David was able to bow the heart of the, those men of Judah? What did he do to bow their hearts? The word means synonymously either turning aside, turning, turning their hearts, turning them aside from where they were headed, where they were directed, until he spoke, causing them to yield, to cause to yield, to bow the heart unto his words, or to cause to incline. You see the synonyms there, to turn, to yield, to incline. He bowed the hearts of his tribesmen, the men of Judah, reminding them that they were his brethren, his bone, his flesh. Who alone can cause men to turn aside, to turn aside from their sinful love of themselves? Who alone can cause them to yield to the claims of Christ? Who only can cause them to incline toward Jesus Christ? Who alone, in other words, can bow the heart of anyone? God alone and only can bow the heart, can cause it to turn aside from its own self-righteous way to cause it to incline, to yield to the claims of Christ. God alone can do this. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart is in the hand of Jehovah and he turneth it whithersoever he will. He turns it in the way that he wants it to go. Even the king's heart kings, the hearts of kings. If the heart of kings, all kings are in the hand of Jehovah. There is no heart that is not in the hand of God. All hearts are in his hand. Therefore, if they are to be turned aside, if they are to be caused to yield, if they are to be inclined to Jesus Christ, it is God, the Holy Spirit, himself, who must do it. And I'm submitting this morning that it was God that bowed the hearts of the men of Judah. God, the Holy Spirit, turned their hearts. God, the Holy Spirit, caused them to yield. God, the Holy Spirit, caused them to incline toward David. He caused them to submit to David and to invite him to submit to his question, his request, why? And so that they invited him to return as king, to return to his throne. God the Holy Spirit caused them to do this. He caused them in this case to submit to the will of David. David let them know we could imagine and presume that Zadak and Abiathar communicated that David yearned, longed for them 
to invite him back to continue being their king. And they yielded to this, the will of David in this. He made them willing in the day of his power as we read in Psalm 110 of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that all the hearts of all kings are in God's hands. He made Cyrus, that king, that heathen king, he made him his shepherd to do his will. He calls Cyrus his shepherd in Isaiah 44, 28. And he calls him in the next chapter, in the first verse of chapter 45 of Isaiah, he calls him his anointed, that he anointed Cyrus to do his will. He turned his heart to do what he wanted him to do, to do his will. Darius, of whom we read in the book of Daniel, particularly, and Nebuchadnezzar, he calls them his servants. Calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant in Jeremiah 27, 6. And surely he had no problem. God had no problem bringing the hearts of these men of Judah to be the servants of David once again. And David made use, as I mentioned, to the speaking of these priests, Zadak and Abiathar. He trusted his desires in their hands in their mouths to go to the men of Judah, his brethren, and to speak to them, ask them why. Why are they the last to ask the king to come back? But he used them to communicate his will unto his brethren, unto his kinsmen according to the flesh, unto his people, his own tribesmen. And he made them willing in the day of his power to do these things. And God so uses the preaching of his word, does he not? He uses the preaching of his word. Now I know he can use many other things and does, but primarily he's ordained the preaching of his word, the preaching of his truth to be communicated in order, in order to bring people's wills around to himself. In order, I say, to do that, he employs the preaching of the word. But you can preach at someone all day long and they will never be moved. You can preach scripture upon scripture, word upon word, tell them about the son of God that died to save sinners and they won't be moved at all. How is it then that they are moved? God uses his word, he uses its preaching to bring his elect to Christ. Yet it is God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit bowing the hearts of men. They must be bowed by God the Holy Spirit. The word without the spirit cannot do that. The Holy Spirit must bow the hearts of those whom God has chosen to eternal salvation. Even as God 
bowed the hearts of the men of Judah. So he bows the hearts of every one of his elect. He bows the hearts of his people that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, chosen to be the ones for whom Christ would die, chosen to be the ones that would receive a new heart through the regenerating power of God the Holy Spirit. Now David, as we mentioned last week, he could have sent his army in to demand, to command, to claim his rightful position as king. But he didn't do that. He sent word to them. Christ, even as he spoke to Pilate and so on, he could have sent 10,000 angels, could he not have, to force us to our knees and to beg him to save us. He didn't do it that way. He is the meek and lowly one. And he sends his Holy Spirit with his message. He sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts that we might listen, that we might turn, that we might yield, that we might incline unto him in the day of his power. Thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power. David wrote in that 110th Psalm. Christ has a special people, even as David had his own tribe. Christ has a special people. They have been given to him, given to him from before the foundation of the world. His elect, his tribe of Judah, as it were, his peculiar people, his chosen people, the people of his own possession, they were given to him. They are his, they belong to him, and he died for them. He poured out his blood for them. And God the Holy Spirit has been given to Christ. We read in John 3.34 and on. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. For he giveth not the Spirit by measure. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hands. And he sends his Holy Spirit. And he has sent his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit does his bidding. That's the office of God the Holy Spirit. To take the things of Christ and to reveal them to the people of Christ. The Holy Spirit has been sent into the hearts of Christ's people. The work of the Holy Spirit is spoken of by Christ himself, famously, if I can say it that way, in John, in the third chapter, in that interview, that dialogue with Nicodemus, Remember these words, so important. Jesus answered Nicodemus. He answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except one be born anew, or again, or from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And be born. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Paul in 2 Corinthians says, There must be a new creature or a new creation. Now, unless we can give birth to ourselves, 
unless we can recreate ourselves, unless we can make ourselves to be new creatures, new creations. Jesus told Nicodemus, and he has told us, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And apart from that work, you cannot, underline that word, cannot. All those advocates of man having the ability through his own will, apart from God, the Holy Spirit, need to underline that. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see anything spiritually. You're blind. You cannot hear. You're deaf. You cannot see the kingdom of God. We must be given life. And that's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Giving the new birth, regenerating hearts. David's people have been made willing by God to come to him. God has covenanted with David in 2 Samuel 7 that the Christ will come of his loins. And so that covenant expressed in 2 Samuel 7 has this intermixture speaking of David in his house, speaking of his greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the house that God will build him. And here in Psalm 110, I submit, in this eternal promise or covenant, we have the covenant between God and his son. His only begotten son, here expressed in this beautiful psalm. This is the covenant that God the Father made with God the Son, whereby the people will be made willing through regeneration, the regenerating power of God the Holy Spirit. You know, the one that's like the wind, Christ said. He blows where he lists. You don't hear the sound. You can't see. But you see the effects. You see the wind blowing the leaves, as it were. As one preacher said, when you see water running uphill, you know God's been doing something. And this psalm, this psalm 110 parallels in many ways that covenant that God made with David. And he said to him in, in that covenant, in 2 Samuel 7, thus saith Jehovah of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat. You were a shepherd. I took thee from that, from following the sheep, that thou shouldest be prince over my people. Isn't that parallel with sit thou at my right hand? In Psalm 110, God said to his son, Jehovah said to the son, to David's Lord, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. That promise. He says, thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of my power. Thy people, the elect, those given him, explains who thy people are, as we've already spoken. And what is it to be willingly, to offer willingly in the day of thy power? What is that? That's the time. But what is it? When is it? the day of thy power. Thy people will offer themselves willingly. 
they will be made willing to come in that day. In what day? Is that not the day of our regeneration? Is that not the day when the people of God, this one and that one, in that time and in this time, experience the grace of regeneration upon their hearts? They are born again, born anew, born from above. No, you can't go back into your mother's womb and be born again. It must be God the Holy Spirit. And that's the day of power. That's the day when Christ's people, those for whom he died, are made willing, made willing to come unto him. The day of regenerating grace. And in this psalm, we see, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that king that his people will come unto and offer themselves willingly, that is at the throne of this priest king, our Lord Jesus Christ, king and priest. Sit thou at my right hand, Jehovah said. Thy people will offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power. They will offer themselves willingly when they're given a new heart when they experience the new birth. But in spite of what many try to assert, these people, yes, the elect as well, these people are unwilling by nature. They will not come. We've all been brought forth in iniquity, as David speaks in Psalm 51. We've all been brought forth in iniquity And in sin, our mothers conceived us. We were born sinners. We can't do anything right without our hearts being made right through regeneration. Christ sending his own Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts, to incline them unto him, to turn them, cause them to yield. They must be renewed. Paul explains this in Ephesians 2. And he speaks to these people as having been dead. And you did he make alive. You didn't make yourself alive. He made you alive. When you were dead. Through your trespasses and sins. You were dead. As David said. Born in iniquity. Conceived in sin. You were dead. And the day you eat the fruit thereof. Adam was told. You shalt. Surely die. Dying, you shall die. And so he did spiritually. And we are born with that nature of Adam in sin. Helpless, dead in sin. But he loved us, Paul goes on to say, even when we were dead. Through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. He must do that if any is to come to him, if any are to offer themselves willingly. Jesus said in John 6, no man, does that leave anyone out of the picture? No man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. No man can again. Impossible. No man can. You cannot see the kingdom unless you're born anew. No man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him. And that includes 
God the Holy Spirit regenerating the heart, making them willing. That's the only way they can be drawn is if they've been made willing by a new, through a new heart, through regenerating power. And I will raise him up at the last day, Jesus said. Tell me, can a dead man hear? Can a dead man see? He must be made a new creature. Now some people seem to think that yes, a dead man can hear. Yes, a dead man can see if you just shout it loud enough and often enough. They will eventually hear. But it's not true. Go to a coffin. Go to an open coffin with the corpse laying in the coffin, dead. I just heard recently about some place selling $300 steak dinners. Go ahead and get one of those $300 steak dinners and offer that to that man. Waft the, the aroma of that delicious steak under his nose. Is he going to be able to partake of it? Is he going to be able to eat? Is he going to sit up and enjoy that steak? He's dead. And the scriptures teach us that we are dead in sin and in our trespasses. Through Adam's sin and our own, we are dead. We cannot make a move. Spurgeon used to tell the account of a Roman Catholic saint, I believe he was, back in the day, that had his head whacked off. And that this was in France. And according to the legend, he picked up his head and walked to Rome. And Spurgeon very wisely, Spurgeon had a way, very wisely said, if you could convince me that that man took the first step, I'll believe that he walked to Rome. And that's a very pointed illustration because there are so many that believe that we can take the first step. Or maybe they put it this way, that God has done everything for your salvation. He sent his son to make it possible for you to be saved. All you have to do is take that one step, that last step. You have to add your step to it. As though Christ hadn't done all, enough, all things for his beloved people. No, a dead man can't hear. No, a dead man can't see. No, a dead man can't do anything. He must be made alive. We have that beautiful sermon of Peter's in Acts 2 after the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And you remember, Peter, how fearful, how backward, how seemingly ignorant he was for so long, comparatively speaking, in how he denied Christ. What happened after God the Holy Spirit was poured out upon himself and others? He stood up and preached the gospel. And he told those hearers, a large multitude, he told them, you, you, through wicked hands, have crucified the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. You have used wicked hands to see this done. And he also told them that it was the determinative counsel and foreknowledge of God 
that it be done, yet you did it with your wicked hands. But Christ, this, this Christ was raised again, he told these people in Acts 2. Beautiful, beautiful. He says in Acts 2, in th- verse 33, being therefore by the right hand of God exalted. In other words, he was raised from the dead. Exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this. These men weren't drunken as you assumed. The Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them. He said for David uh, ascended not into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord, and he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Let all the house of Israel, Peter goes on, therefore know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified. Both Lord and Christ. No, you can't have him as Christ your Savior today and have him as Lord next week or next year or sometime even beyond that. You can't. If you want to be saved, you have to be saved by the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ. What what was their response when they heard this? They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Well, we're going to have a time after the service, and if you want to come forward... Just come down the aisle and come up here and one of these folks up here will tell you what to do. Or just raise your hand or just say this prayer after me. Peter didn't do any of those things. He didn't say any such things. What did he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. They had been convicted. Hearts had been regenerated by God, the Holy Spirit. 3,000 or more came to the Lord willingly in the day of his power and were baptized. They repented and they were baptized. They heeded the direction, the biblical direction from Peter in the day of God's power. The great I am is also the great I will. The great I am is also the great I will, who will make his people willing to come unto him in the day of his power. If you look carefully, I know Ezekiel 36 is one of those quote-unquote Calvinistic, contains one of those verses about God giving a new heart and so on, and that's glorious and wonderful, that covenant promise. But you need to read the whole chapter, at least beginning at verse 22. What does God say? I'll just run through some of these verses in a hurry. Beginning at verse 23. And I will sanctify my great name. And I will take you from among the nations. And I will sprinkle clean water upon you. I will take away the stony heart. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. 
I will, I will, I will, I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleannesses. I, Jehovah, have spoken it. I will do it. What's left for us to do? God is going to do all this. He's promised in this covenant promise. What are we to do? To cry out like these men at Pentecost. Brethren, what shall we do? And go to the word. Thus saith the Lord Jehovah for this, after all these I wills, for this moreover will I be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will do it. I will give you a new heart. I will set you apart. I will put my spirit within you. We have numerous examples in the scriptures of recipients of that new heart, do we not? Paul, exuding fury and, and hatred and spewing it out and on the road to Damascus with papers from the high priest to apprehend those that are following the way, capital W, the way, to apprehend them, to imprison them, perhaps to have some of them executed. He's on the road to Damascus, and what happened? He heard a voice. How did he hear the voice? How did he hear that voice? How did he see that light? His heart must have been turned must have been inclined. Somebody was making water run uphill. He had received a new heart in some moment. We know not exactly when, but all of a sudden he's recognizing. Yes, he says, who are you, Lord? But he recognized that it was the Lord. And he was turned away from his sin. And he was subsequently given back his sight and baptized. Zacchaeus, climbing up in the tree because he heard Christ was walking by. Why did he want to see Christ? What had happened? Has something happened to his heart? He wanted to see Christ. Then he climbed up in that tree. Does Christ know his own? He turned and looked. He looked right at Zacchaeus. How did he know he was in that tree? How did he know that his heart had been regenerated? Come down. I'm going to dine with you at your house today, Zacchaeus. And he came down. The thief on the cross. What made him to differ from the other thief that continued railing on Christ, spewing out hatred? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What made him different? When he looked at Jesus Christ, he saw the Lord of glory. Why? How? He was given a new heart. And that's the only way. And all the disciples that Jesus called to follow him, they left their nets, they left their fathers. What had happened? Something had happened. Somebody was doing something. I believe in the case of each of these individuals and in the case of ourselves, when our hearts were regenerated, we may not have understood what was going on, but something was different when we saw, we saw the light of the world, Jesus Christ. 
not necessarily on a road to Damascus, not necessarily climbing up into a tree, not necessarily hanging upon a cross, but we saw Jesus. We used to open the Bible and we didn't see anything. Now we open it and we see Jesus. We saw the light of the world and we rushed to it because God, the Holy Spirit, had given us a new heart and made us willing to come. And the psalm goes on to say, in holy array or in the beauty of holiness. I believe that that's the end, the end, the goal, that is, of the people of God, the people of Jesus Christ that God the Father has given to him. That is the goal, the design of their being the people of Christ, that they be holy, a holy people in the beauty of holiness, sanctified unto God, set apart from the foundation of the world, set apart from then. We, we refer, as theologians refer to that as definitive, one time only sanctification, being set apart unto Christ. Set apart, sanctified. And then the continual sanctification that we refer to as progressive, ongoing, until we die, ongoing, being sanctified. Progressive sanctification, being washed. The washing of regeneration, the letter to Titus says, in the words of Paul, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. These are those that have experienced the Holy Spirit's regenerating their hearts and have have new life. And they're receiving the renewing of the Holy Spirit, the washing of regeneration. They have been set apart to be conformed, Paul says in Romans 8. Being conformed unto the image of Jesus Christ. Foreordained, he says, to be conformed unto the image of God's Son, unto that the image of that Holy One of Israel. Progressive sanctification out of the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth, David wrote. And the writers struggle, and they vary and differ much. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it struck me that when we read, thou hast the dew of thy youth, speaking of Christ, Christ is ageless, is he not? How can he have the dew of youth? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How can he have the dew of his youth? And some have suggested that not only is he ageless, but his gospel is ageless. And that that perhaps is the dew of his youth, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps it's the new birth. Is that dew from heaven? Is this perhaps the dew spoken of here? That's always new in each individual. When, when a heart is regenerated, that's a new birth. Perhaps there's a reference there. Except one be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Except one be born again, born anew, born from above. Perhaps that's the reference David is making. We read about dew by, uh, in the, a couple of uh, 
prophets, Micah and Zechariah. And, and they say things like this, and the remnant, the remnant, very often refers to the people, the special people of God. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples as dew from Jehovah, as showers upon the grass. And in Zechariah, for there shall be the seed of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its increase, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. I'm only suggesting that. I can't be dogmatic about it. But it's a beautiful picture. Beautiful dew on the grass in the morning with the sun sparkling off of it. It seems to speak of new life. Regenerating grace, if we can imagine. Well, I think that knowing knowing that it, it requires the work of God, the Holy Spirit, for anyone to come to Christ. That we need to be on our knees often. We need to be praying to God to grant revival, to grant a, a new outpouring, another outpouring. He may have granted an outpouring on the other side of the globe that we've not heard of, but we haven't seen anything in this land in over a century. We need to be praying more fervently. We need to ask God to quicken our faith when we pray for these things. We need to continue hoping, praying, seeking revival, that we would witness the dew of this regenerating grace that we have received falling upon many in a great revival of the true religion of the gospel according to Jesus Christ, even, even a new Pentecost. Oh, wouldn't that be marvelous? We are convinced, as I've already said, that Pentecost was, was the sovereign working of God, the Holy Spirit, not only enabling Peter to preach as he did, as he had never before preached, but making 3,000 souls willing to come to Jesus Christ. We can only imagine something like that. And as my brother has intimated a few years ago, we might not, we probably wouldn't know what to do, but we would rejoice for sure if such an event took place in our own day. Let us be urgent. Let us be vehement in our longing, in our asking God to rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake in such a revival. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we do, we do ask that we might see such a thing, not only just, not even just for our satisfaction that we would be able to say we had witnessed something, but oh Lord our God, that we might see thy glory shining in such an event, that we might experience O oh Lord our God, the work of God, the Holy Spirit upon many, that we might rejoice that Christ Jesus is being honored one by one with a great multitude of peoples coming to him. We ask for it. O oh Lord our God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.